Welcome to episode 23 of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings a regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange, that's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself, so please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all of your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. My name is Christian Haas. I am a developer who embraces extreme programming. And my name is Paul Rohatzka. I'm a software developer with the heart of a tester. And here we have our guest today, and our guest is Fabian Schmidt. Welcome, Fabian. Hello, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, where, where, do, where did I learn to know you? I learned to know you, I guess, at the DDD meetup in Vienna. Yeah. Or did we meet before? I'm not sure. I think, I think it was a DDD meetup, yes. yes. Because, um, of course, we are now both co-hosters of the meetup, so we are... Exactly. At one of the DDD meetups, you did a very interesting talk about a topic that we want to talk today in this episode. Mm -hmm. This was about one of the, pro the, the projects, and even the products that you are working on with your, with your team. Mm -hmm. And it uses an architectural pattern, if that's correct, but you can, you can explain it if it's not correct. That is very interesting and not so widely used, but has a real good traction in the last years. Yeah. And, well, yeah, what is this pattern? Why should we care? <laughs> okay. Let's, let, me, let me start um, by introducing myself a little bit. Um, I'm a software developer. I'm a software architect and a lead developer. I work at uh, Rubicon IT. And at Rubicon, um, I have a team, and we are uh, building a code signing platform um, called signpath.io. And that's a big project, and um, it's, had, it, it's formed of several components several bounded contexts in the domain-driven design sense, and one of these is based on the CQRS and event sourcing architectural patterns. Okay, before we dive too much into this topic, let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what problem does the product solve. So what is about code signing? What is the thing about code signing? Okay, well, code signing... The thing about code signing is that actually everyone who publishes software should sign their code, because um, by signing their code, they can make sure that the clients using the software, the clients installing the software, really can be sure that the software is from the vendor and that nobody tampered with it and so on. And it's actually, um, should be a simple thing, but it is not. Um, first of all, there are some technical difficulties. The tooling isn't quite straightforward and so on, and we are trying to solve this. But even more importantly, to do code signing, you need a private key. You need a code signing certificate with a private key. And as soon as you're a team larger than a few people, a company larger than a few people, the code signing certificate becomes the bottleneck because um, one person has the code signing certificate and they mustn't give it away. So because if it's lost, then everybody could sign the code using the certificate. Um, and so this person is a bottleneck, and if the person isn't available and so on, um, they can't, the team cannot sign the software and cannot publish the software. And what SignPath tries to solve is um, that the person who owns the code signing certificate can store the private key safely in a hardware security module and can then grant permissions to the team members to use the code signing certificate for some um, purposes, for some defined purposes, using policies, defined policies, and uh, everything that's done with the private key with the code signing certificate is audited and recorded and can be seen um, and inspected afterwards. So that's in principle what we are trying to build, and um, that platform has a few challenges, and that's why we decided to build one of the bounded contexts, the main bounded context, using the CQRS and event sourcing architectural patterns. Mm -hmm. okay. 
this idea of having something very, very, that has to be kept very private, yeah. uh, but has to be available to others as well for some purposes as signing the code, yeah. uh, of course includes the, the need to be sure who accessed, who had access at a specific right. point in time exactly. and who did what with exactly. it, who used it at what uh, exactly. instance in time. And I guess this was one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons why for we the architecture choice that you did. This yes. is one of the reasons why we used it. Okay. Yeah. okay. But maybe I should start at the beginning okay. and, and tell a little bit about Perfect. the pattern. Perfect. Patterns. Actually, there are two patterns. The first one is CQRS, which stands for Command Query Responsibility Segregation. And the second one is event sourcing. Um, command query responsibility segregation is actually use, useful on its own, even without event sourcing. Um, but it's, it unfolds its, its full power if you combine it, yeah, if you combine the two, two patterns. Um, so maybe I'll just uh, start by describing what CQRS is, actually. Um, in a classical architecture, it's, it's nowadays common that you have a domain model, which models your business domain, right? And with the command query responsibility segregation pattern, you separate or you split the domain model into really two things. You have one model that is responsible for all the modifying use cases in the system. This is the command use cases in the system. And this is uh, where all the complicated business rules are located and where the, the interesting behavior of the system is located. And um, this is where you, where you really implement, uh, very, you try to implement very clean code that expresses your business rules and your business demands and your domain language and so on. And then you have a second model, the... Um, which is, which is aimed for queries, which uh, provides the functionality to, to ask the system uh, about, about its state or about uh, projections of its state. And yeah, so you have, where you once had one model, the domain model, you now have two models, the command model, also called write model, and the query model, also called read model. And what so, are the reasons why you want to choose? Because in... in there are actually a number of reasons, but um, it's about flexibility mainly. Because in the classical architecture, you always have this tension um, between your business rules and, and having, them, having the domain model optimized for the business rules and having clean code and so on, having a clean model. And on the other, on the other hand, you want to have Queries that run in a, with a reasonable performance, you you will have to I don't know structure your data tables in a way that that uh, um, afford uh, the right query performance, um, and you're always going these you're always doing these compromises between between the queries and the commands, and by splitting this. Um, you can focus each model on what it's meant for and so uh, you can you can optimize the right model to express your business rules and you can optimize the read model to uh, express uh, to be optimized for um, queries yeah so I assume assume the command module would also have some sort of reading capabilities in order to implement something yes uh, I guess um, the business rule does have does also need some input from its other data to be working. Yes, uh, that's true. But um, in principle, you, you are trying to, to model your um, business behavior in a way that most of the state that is um, needed is um, encapsulated in your, in your right model um, in a way that it's already present when you execute a command. I don't know if you know the... the um, technical design pattern uh, from domain-driven design called aggregate. This is often mm -hmm. often okay. combined with uh, with uh, CQRS. Um, 
So this means that this one aggregate already has all the information it needs yes, to perform its function. Exactly. And, and exactly. whatever command this comes in just modifies it within its own structure. Okay. Within its own domain, uh, this, its, its own um, the state that the aggregate has. Of course, this is not generally possible. This is just um, how you try to, mo to, 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 to structure your model. Okay, the some, I'm sometimes, curious about the try now. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, of course, need to perform queries before you execute uh, mm -hmm. a command use case, and then you do just that. You perform a query, and then you execute a command use case. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, I said performance is one of the reasons, so you can optimize the right model for, for behavior and the read model for performance. But there are also other um, aspects to that. For example, um, there is this, I don't know, do you know the, the CAP theorem? Consistency, availability, and partition tolerance? Yeah, exactly. You have these three things, consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. And you may only choose two of them. You can either have consistency and availability, but then you're vulnerable to partitions. Or you can have partition tolerance and availability, but then you cannot be consistent. Or you cannot be eventually consistent. And um, using, using this pattern, you have an interesting option. You can choose two for your write model and two different ones for your read model. Ah. So you can, you can be consistent um, and uh, maybe available in your write model, but not partition tolerant. But you can at the same time be partition tolerant in your read model and only be mm -hmm. um, eventually consistent. And because there are many applications that, are, that have more read use cases or where read use cases are executed much more often than the write use cases, um, this is actually a very good thing if you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, using a classical architecture, that's not um, so easy. And um, one thing that's important uh, to me is that uh, using CQRS leads to a really good separation of concerns because you're every, every use case, every modifying use case, which has interesting business rules, is a dedicated command. And you tend to focus or you design around these commands a lot. And this results in a design where the different commands are very isolated from each other, very separate from each other. And for SignPath, for example, um, we want to, to have the option of um, evolving our model a lot uh, as time goes by, because it was a new product and we, we had some pretty good ideas about what it should do, but we said, okay, while we are creating this product, we will learn how um, it will be used and we want to remain flexible and, and um, be able to add more use cases without this typical uh, you know, code route that you have uh, where, where as time goes by, adding more use cases always gets more and more expensive. Okay, this is also something that I, I frequently, frequently hear about uh, CQRS when you're not so sure about your domain and it's going to be evolving. That's one of the, the factors that help in this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is, there, is there some sort of a, a minimum, I don't know, entry requirement for where it makes it viable to have CQRS? Can I have a, a small walking, I don't know, skeleton example, which would demonstrate the separation between the command and the, the query part? Um, yes. I can uh, give you uh, I can give you two examples from from Sunpath IO, for example. Um, as I said, one of the main things that Sunpath needs to do is to watch or to to manage your code signing certificates. Okay, so you can of course add new certificates to the system, and you can um, and that's that would be a command use case, of course, and. Uh, after you edit certificates, you, you will want to have a list of certificates in the, in the system, or you, want to, you will want to inspect the data for, of, of one certificate. And those would be query use cases. Okay, and in, something... in practical, this would then be two different services, or whatever, two different processes touching the database? Um, 
Well, it depends on, on how you actually implement CQRS, but it's at least two different models. So you, when, the, when you have a web application, for example, um, that, or maybe a REST API, that uh, is the interface to, to, your, to your inner um, model, uh, then you will um, implement the add certificate command in the right model. So you can, you can actually think of that like really a classical domain model. You have classes that, that implement the uh, certificate, for example, and, and you create an instance of that certificate domain object and write it to a database, for example. And um, then you have the read model, which is an, another model, and, and this implements the give me a list of all certificates, for example. And um, this is completely separated from the code of the add certificate, in this case. Mm -hmm. And of course, the data needs to be some, some, somehow shared or in sync. And um, now we, we are we need to come to the point where uh, we need to discuss how to actually implement command response-based application. But the basic idea is, the, the main thing is, that you implement those two things separately. Okay, and how would you approach this? Is there some sort of a common agreement? So if, if common agreement, if I would put, I don't know, two teams for such a separation, if it would be as strict for the implementation of these two patterns, mm -hmm. to have a set, one team that creates the commands and another team that does the reads. How do the, what's the, the agreement between them? Actually, I, I probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> All right, I'm, yeah, hypothetical, so bear with me. So okay. how, how would this, yeah, that's what, a, what's the that's common contract? Yeah. contract? Um, this depends, but um, there, there are different levels how you can implement CQS. I'll just start with the simplest one, which is probably the, the least common one, but it's the simplest one. The simplest one is you have a write model with just an ordinary object relational uh, mapped uh, object structure. So your domain objects are mapped to a database schema. And then you have a read model, and it just performs queries over the same schema. OK? Mm -hmm. That's the most simple form of, of doing CQS. So you have two different code models, but the data is the same. Okay. Okay? Um, this is one way of doing this. And this is actually a good idea if you say, I want to do CQRS, but I want to start with the least possible complexity. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because this is nearly the same as you always do it. You just split the, the commands and the queries, and the rest is the same. As, as, as always. But of course, to really have the full power of, of, of CQRS, you would do it differently. The commands would be stored in a different data uh, store than um, or the, the, the command model would be, the write model would be stored in a different data store than the read model, and you would synchronize the two data stores. And usually people implement this by um, means of domain events. So whenever the, for example, when I add a certificate, when the add certificate command use case is executed, the write model, after checking all the business invariants and, 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 and making sure that this is really possible, what I want to do, it will issue a domain event called, for example, certificate was added. And somebody on the read model side will subscribe, some entity on the read, some process on the, on the read model side will subscribe to these uh, domain events, will react on a certificate was added and will add a certificate entry in its own data store. Okay, so this would then somehow create a copy of the information in its own format that it wants? It, um, yeah, right. It, okay. would, it would create a, it's called projection of okay. this information. All right, so the command part checks the invariance, like I said. It, I don't know, identifies the user, sees whether, whether the user is allowed to do that to some degree, whatever. Yeah. If you are checks allowed limits. to have yet another certificate, for example, and so on. Okay, so and this then also implies that all the, the domain logic, i.e. The, the, the limits, are on the command side. The read yeah. side can simply trust whatever the, the domain yes. events represent. So if there is a limit of I'm only allowed to have at top at most 10 certificates, yes. then it would be the responsibility of the command side to check this, verify this. Yes. And the read side could simply trust if I, for some reason, received a certificate added event, then I 
simply can add it even if this would add up to 11 certificates yes. on the read side. Exactly. If that were the case, then some event was missing. That's exactly. Okay. The, so the, the write model cares about um, what is allowed or not, the business rules, as I said, and the read model just um, relies on the facts that the write model is reporting. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, next, the next level would, be, would then be to combine CQRS with event sourcing, um, where the write model doesn't even have um, a classical data store, but the domain events are actually the, the, the data of the write model. That's uh, the next, um, next step, I would say, going with CQRS, and this is what, what we do. Um, so the right model does not rely on some <coughs> uh, current state stored as it is at the moment, but yeah. just reiterating everything again until it comes to the current state. Exactly. exactly. Classically, you would just, as I said before, have some object model, which is all object relationally mapped to a database, and um, that's the data store of your right model. But if you have to issue domain events for every successful command anyway, you, you now have, I don't know, some, 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 somehow two sources of truth, right? You have that uh, relational database schema for the right model, and you have those domain events published. If these two get out of sync, if there is a bug somewhere where these two don't match, then the whole system is somehow in a, in a very strange state where the write model thinks uh, of the system in a different way than the read model does. Like in the previous example, for some reason, um, I don't know, certificate uh, was removed, event got lost, and so the read side has now 11, mm -hmm. whereas the write model knows only of 10. For example. Okay. Right. And uh, therefore, um, you can take one step further and say, okay, the write model will no longer persist a relational schema of its data, but it will just persist the domain events. And um, whenever a domain object in the write model needs to know its state, it will just load all the domain events that it raised at some point in time earlier um, and apply those events. In, in a rebuilding its state or less. So maybe add, add certificate is not the best example for that, but for example, if you have more commands than that, so you added a certificate and then maybe you renewed it because it was mm -hmm. uh, at some, some point of uh, being, um, of expiring. So you renew it. So you have two commands, you, you execute two commands on that, on that uh, certificate object and the certificate will raise two events. Certificate was added and certificate was renewed, and it will store those two events. And then, if you if you want to to work with that certificate object at a later point of time, it will just load these two events. The certificate was added event, which contains probably probably contains all the data that was required to to represent the certificate. And certificate was renewed. And now the object knows um, that it is a certificate with certain properties that has already been renewed and can rebuild its state from these two events. Mm. So this, this command side essentially also has its own reading side then. It, it behaves like yes. the other reader and consumes on its own to yes, recre recreate everything. So. Very similar actually. It also listens to its own <laughs> events more or less, um, but loads them on demand and, and hands them on demand when the object is uh, to be loaded and uh, builds its state from that. And I think there is also a special name for this process. Is, is it uh, it's hydrated? Hydration. Or, yeah. Okay. It's called hydration when, yeah. uh, when an object is created from a data store. Okay. Just it's, add water. Yes, just add water and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it will inflate or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, does that's, every, that's of course. Sorry. Just a uh, mm -hmm. tiny question. Uh, does typically every command just issue a single domain event? Or are there cases where it emits several? Usually, usually you start with, yes, it's one event per command. And then as your domain gets more complex and as your use cases get more complex, it will start um, to change. Well, of course, commands can raise no event if, for example, mm -hmm. a domain rule is, is not satisfied. But um, 
you will you will probably implement some workflows and so on where where a single command would raise several events. Does that introduce additional complexity if a command is raising multiple events, or is it does it just not matter? No, actually, it doesn't really matter. Okay, it's um, actually all this all of this uh, aligns really well with uh, some some other techniques and 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 um, practices from the domain-driven design uh, realm, like for example, event storming. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. this. Yeah, of course you know that, but. Um, um, these these things, these commands, and these events—they align really, really well with uh, business concepts usually. And um, I don't know if you have if you have a business domain and you you execute a command um, use case, then even even when you talk about the domain, you will probably talk about multiple facts that that that, that come from this one use case, mm -hmm. and then you model the, those as multiple events as well. Okay. So actually, I don't think it raises complexity. It, maybe it um, leads to a better modeling of what's really happening in the true mm -hmm. business domain. Uh, um, yeah. I wanted to, to talk about that events uh, sourcing thing a little bit more, mm -hmm. because that does add complexity. Okay. This This is different from what uh, everybody else is doing and what we used to do. So when I said before that the, the most simple way of implementing CQRS is not that much different from, from the classical domain model, um, using, using event sourcing as a data store is definitely different. Okay. From, so what, what is the key difference then? Yeah, for example, that you need an event store instead of a relational database. Okay, though, since we on anyway wanted to distribute some domain events, we have some sort of event distribution mechanism anyway, like an event bus. So yes. how much different is now event bus from this event store? Actually, um, interesting. the funny thing is that most event stores can be used as an event queue, which is very similar to an event bus. Uh, can replace an event bus in, in, in most uh, situations. Um, so it's the other way around. What, what can an event store do? What an event bus doesn't, and an event bus usually doesn't store events mm -hmm. for a long, long uh, time because the event store, of course, has to store all the domain events from that ever ever existed in your application for as long as you need the data of, of those objects. Okay, so th this is the core central redundancy necessary component then. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's a. Uh, it's of course, actually, it is very simple. It's um, you can you can implement it in a relational database with with no with no effort by just uh, de defining a single table, name it events, give it I don't know um, a few metadata columns and a single payload column where you store some serialized JSON and you have an event store. But the the difficulties in the detail, of course, um, because. Uh, um, you need to have some way that, that uh, if you want to use it as an event queue at the same time, that subscribers can subscribe to newly added events. You need to optimize uh, it for, for reading um, just the, either just the events for a single write model object or other events in a defined order and so on. So it's a little bit of uh, it's a, a bit of infrastructure that's really important and that should be um, it sounds simple at first but really need, need some 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 brains to, to implement in the end. Okay. And actually I wouldn't really do it uh, myself. I would uh, use some some existing event store. There is one um, implementation that uh, many many projects using event sourcing um, employ, which is called Event Store from Greg Young, okay. um, which is really a great optimized uh, event store implementation, which also has some tooling for uh, management and so on, data management. But uh, it's it's also a black box. You can use you, you cannot use the the classical. Um, the classical, I don't know, tools your 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 operations team is used to. Mm -hmm. So many many teams then decide to use 
an event store that is based on on a relational database again, and this is actually what we are doing as well. We are using the N event store library, event. Okay. N event store, mm -hmm. which is uh, an event store implementation for .NET, and uh, it, it has a pluggable backend, so you can you can store your events in, in, in different uh, kinds of uh, underlying data stores, and we are using a SQL Server database, so we can use. So that the, we can use uh, the, the tooling and infrastructure our operations team is, is used to. Okay, so in your case, the event table is just another table within all the other tables that you are also using for the read model, or is it a separate? It's a separate schema. Okay. Um, it uh, could be a separate database. At the moment, it's, it's not a separate database, but in principle, it could be. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but it's just add table in add database. Okay. If you want to make full use of the uh, performance and scalability and, and cap theorem uh, things uh, I mentioned before, then you should use different databases, really. Yeah. But if I remember your talk uh, back then correctly, you also are writing to the event store and updating the read side tables in a transaction, a SQL transaction. Yeah, but, but is that correct? <laughs> that's or? correct, but it's cheating. It's what? our dirty <laughs> secret, actually. <laughs> oh, I'm so secret. sorry. We, we, we cut it out. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, to, to leverage the full benefits of, of uh, CQRs and event sourcing, you should not do that. You should uh, you should have the read model listen to the events asynchronously in a background process and have it updated um, independently from, from the transactions executing the, yeah, the but commands. I, fi I find it really interesting because I understand you, you, are, uh, you are delegating some problems that you would have with a really separated CQRS system just to a classical ACID transaction. Mm. And so you can draw your benefits from it as long as you don't need all the flexibility and this yeah. stuff. That's that's the whole the whole CQRS and event uh, sourcing based architecture gives you gives you a lot of options. Yes. Once you start uh, separating your models, then you can you can say okay, will I go the simple route and 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 um, and refactor uh, and migrate, of course, after a certain point of time, or will I go the complex route from the from the start? And we decided that we want to use event sourcing from the start because of a certain benefit, which you already mentioned, because um, I, will, I will come to that in a minute. And But we, we, we didn't want to have the additional complexity that would be introduced by asynchronously updated read models, because asynchronously updated read models, of course, will lead to an eventual consistent user experience where a user will add a certificate, for example, and if he then or she then um, Views the list of certificates. The read model might not be updated yet, mm -hmm. right? And many, many, uh, many software systems work that way. But at the moment, we don't really need that flexibility and those uh, scalability and performance characteristics. And we don't want to deal with the complexity this, this mm -hmm. gives. And uh, therefore, we decided to do it. The read model updates synchronously with the uh, command updates and for the time being, we can therefore not scale as well, but when we need to, we can still go the eventually consistent route. I think now it would be interesting, uh, is, is the system um, provided as a software as a service offering? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, and we also uh, consider, or actually we, we also offer it as an on-premise installation for, mm -hmm. for uh, companies who do not want to use it as software okay. as a service. Yeah. And so, interesting question would be, what is the number of events that you have currently stored in your SS, uh, SAAS version? Can you, is um, it a well, huge number? I guess so. It's, it's not huge yet. It's, I think, about 100,000 events or something okay. like that. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's where we are at the moment. <laughs> okay, do you have on this spe uh, specific tables special considerations regarding where where this data is stored is it stored in a separated file of this database 
Is it what about indexing well, we, of this table? We are and using stuff? okay about the files. We are using cloud uh, database infrastructure. Okay, Azure SQL. So we don't really talk about files there. Okay, um, and indexing. Yeah, the the event store is indexed uh, in a way that event querying works well for the work model implementation, and the read model itself is indexed in a way that the the queries uh, work well and. Mm -hmm. As I said, for the time being, this is absolutely okay. Mm -hmm. And if we need it, we can later go the eventually consistent route and decouple okay. those two. And then we can we can start scaling like Netflix if you want mm -hmm. to. <laughs> you you yeah. mentioned a few technologies. So how uh, and in these cloud of topics, I often also have Apache Kafka. How and where does this come in? Is this related or just uh, another buzzword? Um, Kafka is also used in event-driven architectures, event sourcing. An event sourcing based architecture is usually also an event driven architecture um, where you have subscribers that react to events. For example, the read model projections are subscribers that react on events. And you might also have some other systems. Once you start having domain events, you can think of uh, numerous components that would like to subscribe to those events in, and, 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 and react to them in a reactive way. And Kafka is one way of implementing such an event bus. Mm -hmm. um, some people also try to use it as an event store, but actually it's not really um, well suited for that because in Kafka, well, an event store needs to be um, capable of, of storing a high number of events, of course, partitioned by objects, by, by single domain objects, okay? So, for so example... Those, those aggregates that you Aggregates, yes. Yeah. For example, in, in, in SignPath, there will be uh, dozens, I don't know, maybe dozens of certificates per customer. And if you have, uh, I don't know, 100,000 of customers, you will have lots and lots of, of certificates. And you, you need to be able to, to load the events for just a single certificate efficiently from an event store that might have, okay. I don't know, 100,000 or, or millions of certificates. And with Kafka, um, you can, of course, make a partition for, for all certificates, but it will contain the events of all certificates. You cannot make partitions for a single certificate. Okay, if, so you do, I... you, if you did do that, you wouldn't be able to, to, to use all the cool features of it. Okay, so this sounds like an event store would be a store where I have the entries uh, assigned with some labels. Where, where one, one label could be the identifier of this, this certificate, for instance, another label would be the ordering of yeah. these events. Custom identifier, I don't know. Yeah, we, we are usually um, saying that every domain object, every aggregate has an ID, and this ID is also the ID of the event stream. Mm -hmm. So, so every so an event store stores event streams, and a domain model, a write model, uh, maps one event stream to one domain object. Okay, and are the events in, within one event stream somehow related in terms of, of order to the events of another event stream? Um, this depends on the implementation of the of the event store. In principle, no. They are not. So events within one event stream are ordered, of course, because the, the domain object, it, it is a difference if uh, the certificate is renewed before it's added. Right, that's correct. Or if it's added before it's renewed. Um, but between two different events, event streams, there is no defined ordering. Okay, so I have to be very careful when, when declaring what an event stream or what the object yes. is. In event this is what I said earlier. This is this domain-driven design concept of an aggregate, where it says that, um, which is defined by an aggregate is a protector of invariants, more or less. So uh, whenever you have an, a hard business rule between objects, they should have a single aggregate and thus a single event stream manages this uh, this thing. Um, because other rules between um, aggregates will be 
eventually consistent or maybe inconsistent, depending on how you implement it. And um, so it's important to, to, to keep an eye on how you are modeling your, your business. Okay, so if I have an, an event stream of, of certificates, for instance, and an event stream of the user or the customer mm. owning these certificates, mm -hmm. uh, I have to be careful not to check whether or not to, it's allowed to add a certificate without having the user. So the aggregate yeah. must must have must already have the base information the customer well, exists. You will usually you will usually do a query if the user exists or something like that before you accept the, the command that this user adds a certificate. So of course there's a logical there's a logical order of events. Um, you cannot even create the you cannot even when you send the add certificate command yeah. There will be some 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 handler in your in your source code that receives that command mm -hmm. and will check if there is a user mm -hmm. um, that matches who is adding this certificate. Okay, and and, and 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 this user will of course need to exist because because uh, um, somebody just did that in the user interface and so so the the, the logical order will usually surface. Uh, usually work. There is, of course, the, a possibility of implementing an event store where the different streams are in different locations around the world or something like that, and where, um, for example, the add certificate command is, is, is handled in North America and the user was added in Europe and the, the data isn't yet available or something like that, but we don't have an event store. Okay. okay. Would, would so we have one event store where all the event streams are um, situated in, and so if somebody adds a user before they add a certificate, there will be the user will be present in the event store at the time the, the okay, certificate means command. When the exists. command for adding a certificate is handled and it is checked whether the user exists to allow it mm. to do that, uh, this process presumably doesn't have the user yet. It would go back to the event store again and search for the event stream of that user, mm. read that user, and then hopefully also have all the information, unless it's also some permission-based, then it goes to the next stream to mm. query whether or not the permission is there. And after some call stacks back, then it can say, yes, I'm allowed to add this certificate. Yeah. And after so, the call is done, all of this is thrown away from memory again. Yes, for example, yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, to say one thing, that um, earlier you asked me about whether the events uh, have a defined ordering, if, if, if they belong to different streams. In practice, they usually will they usually will have such an order because um, an event store, for example, has an incre increasing number that is assigned to to every event that is written to the event store. So, a unique increasing number. So, if, if I if I add an event for the uh, certificate stream, it's event number five, for example, and then I add an event to the user stream that will be event number six. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it does it is because event stores are usually also used as event queues. So there will be external listeners um, telling the event store, please give me all the events that were added after event number five, for example. And, and therefore, there is usually a total ordering. Um, for example, Greg Young's event store also does this. But it, it, it um, even goes a step further, and, and you can have clusters of, of, of geographically distributed uh, event stores. And for these, they implemented some kind of uh, vector clock mm -hmm. that allows synchronization of the events between those um, right. okay. clusters. What about concurrency issues? So if, if, let's say, one customer can have 10 certificates, and it has already nine, mm -hmm. And then from two concurrent inputs, there come the request to add the tenth. Mm -hmm. you, will, you, you just told me about the business rule. The customer may only have ten certificates, so you will probably have to implement an aggregate for this business rule. Mm -hmm. Okay, this aggregate will know for the customer how many certificates they, he already or she already has, and when um, the customer tries to add another certificate, that command goes to that uh, aggregate first, to that aggregate protecting this business environment, and that aggregate will say, okay, this is allowed or this is not allowed. And this aggregate will then raise the uh, certificate added or not event. Okay, but that just doesn't does just work if it's really a single point where the code is running, isn't it? 
So if there are concurrent no. requests. Okay, okay. This is usually handled in um, if you have the concurrent requests, both will load the aggregate, the, the event stream protecting this invariant, and one of them will modify the event stream, and the other one will usually run into an optimistic concurrency uh, violation. Exception. Okay. So those, this, is, this is implemented using optimistic concurrency. There is some um, before how? an event implemented how using optimistic concurrency. So, so I, as I understand it, so it's basically reading the the number, the last number, or the version number of the, no, not version, the the last event number mm. that uh, he in saw the in the stream and yeah. writes it back. And if the, if the last one is not all still the last one, but someone else has someone already else added has something. Then it fails, yes. Right, this is exactly how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, diff the second use case will fail with the concurrency error, and then usually you would just repeat it because it was just adding a certificate, and then the, the invariant would fail and would say, okay, you already have 10, and, and display an error to the users. Okay, I'm, I'm already spinning up in my head uh, the more complex concurrency errors where two different aggregates are allowed to do something, though it's dependent on their respective current state. This is then a third aggregate, mm -hmm. as you said. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a pattern for that. In, it's, it's a, again a domain-driven design pattern, actually, not a CQS pattern. But um, in the, in the, this whole aggregate concept comes from domain-driven design, and in there you have the concept of process managers. Whenever a process involves more than one aggregate, you have a process manager. Um, that manages the process, which means that one of the aggregates gets gets uh, the command, raises its event, the process manager listens to the event, uh, goes to the next aggregate, sends the command, reacts on what should happen if the command doesn't work, compensating actions, and so on. Okay. Uh, in, in, in practice, this is usually not that complicated, because you can usually you also you always have to to ask yourself you always have to ask yourself is it would it be that bad if we let this happen in very edge case scenarios yeah? okay is it so, bad to have too much money deducted from the bank account is it bad <laughs> this to, is, to this send bad, the command to the plane bad, to the dive but but would it would it be really bad if in in very rare situations where the read model is not yet updated from the previous commands a customer could get 11 certificates instead of 10 is this really that bad if yes you will implement a process manager mm -hmm. which synchronizes but if it's not that bad and you can just do a simple query before you accept the command. And if somebody manages to do that, uh, to, to, to add two certificates right in, in, in that um, tiny window of time where your read models have not yet been updated, well, then they can have 11 But I think that's also the power of, of all of this is to have a, a business discussion about the severity of such a problem. Yeah. Does it really matter? Yeah. Um, Greg Young usually says, no, it does not. Maybe it does in the in the in the in the money sense, but even in the money sense, um, even the money scenario doesn't really matter. For example, if you if you go to an ATM machine and you deduct money, and uh, the ATM machine loses connection to to the bank, there are I don't know about ATM machines, but the, the ATM um, point of sale terminals that you have in supermarkets and so on, they will just accept it, and they will synchronize later on. And if you don't have the money on the on, the, on your account, then you will have a negative uh, balance afterwards. Even if this goes, uh, even if this this um, wouldn't be allowed by your limit. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. So in practice, even with banks, it's not that bad. Okay. So, that, so I, I already heard the basic precondition for the whole thing is domain-driven design. It's um, a great precondition. The I'm I'm not sure if it's it is the only way to do CQRS, but um, I think it is a great way to do CQRS. Okay. Yes. 
Okay, so there's a lot of information. Okay, event storming, yes, uh, yes event sourcing and secret race. And I have the feeling there are still a lot of questions that could be yeah. could be asked for another episode. <laughs> I, 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 can I can I just add one thing because sure. there is there is uh, one important thing I didn't mention. Why are why signpath.io using event sourcing? And the reason is because that way we get a really great audit history for free. Mm. When you when you store a domain event, whenever something happens in your write model in your domain model then you can just use that as a display it to the user as a history and, and it will be complete and it will show everything that happened in your domain. And this is really important for something like SignPath where, where uh, we really want the customer to be able to trust the system and there's no better way to to have somebody trust the system if you can be very transparent and, 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 mm. and show them exactly what happened. But you could mm. even implement something like time travel. Yeah, right. If you would like to. Yes. Yeah, cool so stuff. Speaking, of, speaking about being transparent and time travel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess that means this episode is already lasting for way too long. <laughs> <laughs> way I, 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 was, I was rather uh, pointing out at what is happening in Vienna. <laughs> yeah, what is happening in Vienna. We have the Global Day of Code Retreat happening in a few days. So uh, publishing this episode on 1st of November. You have now two weeks time for the Global Day of Code Retreat happening on 15th and 16th of November in which you can practice pretty much any skill you can think of regarding software development, be it now hard skills, uh, technical skills, programming languages, IDEs and shortcuts, or also soft skills like pair programming and social interactions and everything. Exactly. Where can we find information about it? You can find the information in, on our homepage. Okay. Because the links are on Eventsprite with some rather long information, or and yeah, but you can also go to softworkskammer.org. Exactly. Or there's their official global website, coderetreat.org. Mm -hmm. You can look up a map and find two events in Vienna. And or the next best uh, event in your city as well. Yeah, exactly. If you are not listening from Vienna. <laughs> okay. So. Thank you. I guess this was a very dense and interesting episode. Thank you, Fabian, for being here. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I guess this was another episode of Developer Melange.